Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a podcast superstar, a Charlotte Shardog Listler. She's co-creator of Playing House and star of Screen, both small and large. Welcome to Lennon Parham. Hey. Hey. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Truly my pleasure. Like I said, you co-created Playing House. You also played Martha in The House, and now you're in yes. The Horror House. So there you go. Yes. Rule of threes. Complete the set. Only do things that have house in the title. <laughs> That's my motto. <laughs> Why don't you tell me a little bit about your relationship with horror? You know, it's not something that is always brought up in comedy podcasts or comedy shows. Sure. But, you know, on Womp It Up, whenever you'd pull out like a horror reference and cause a stir, it was always like, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> like she must really be into it. Yeah, I, uh, you know what? I think I was exposed to like Elvira-esque Saturday. It's like everybody else had Saturday morning cartoons and I had NyQuil-induced Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Like, <laughs> Dark. I mean, I have like vivid memories of watching films that I definitely should not have been watching. And I'm like, what were they playing on? You know, like <laughs> what what station was it? You know, TNT, had WGN. Some, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I did see like a lot. And and as I'm going back and watching that, like I went back and watched The Howling recently. My friend Katie Dippold is a horror obsessed and so she will have these gatherings where we watch horror movies in her backyard and we recently did children of the corn and we did Candyman. and for her birthday we rented out a little theater and we all watched the howling together which i had not watched since i was maybe 14 or something mm -hmm. and i had recorded it off television onto a vhs tape so dating myself but <laughs> i wanted access to it i guess all the time or whatever <laughs> But yeah, watching that and I was like, oh my God, all all of my nightmares that I remember vividly connect to this. And the same thing happened when I was watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers, re-watching it last night <laughs> with my husband who had told me like, I was prepared for this to be like a cheesy, like a bad movie. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Do you remember that other film? Oh my God, Dead Calm? Oh, that what yeah. It's called? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's another one that literally I was traumatized by wow. and have like mem like really specific memories from that film like the one where he flashes back in <sighs> the murder in the gazebo and then the way that the killer i don't want to spoil it but like what happens to the killer in the end is very bloody and insane right it's like a w insane way to <laughs> die so that i went back and i watched that again recently not maybe not on purpose i think i was like in a hotel room and it was on and I was like, oh my God, this is the movie that traumatized me. And so what What better way to spend a Saturday afternoon, right? Then watch it again. Confront so it. I, yeah. And so I did. Yeah. Anyway, so I think that's mostly I was too young to watch these films, watch them, was traumatized, sort of also hooked by them. Sure. Like really like stuck with me. Yeah. And then it invaded my consciousness in various ways throughout. Yeah. Do you have a favorite subgenre? I don't even know what that means. I mean, I do know what it means, but I wouldn't know. Yeah. Like, nah, I just like. Just whatever yeah. strikes your fancy in the, in yeah. the moment. Yeah. Give me a couple. Tell me what a couple are. So like um, slashers would be one, paranormal stuff, um, mm. you know, um, more sci-fi bent stuff, you know, Got just kind of like the silos. Yeah. Some, some people are just like, whatever, I'll take it all. <laughs> Werewolves. Uh, yeah, you know? I guess it's like, yeah, exactly. 
where so what 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 am i talking werewolves we're talking like an alien basically a pandemic yeah right yeah with invasion of the body snatchers yeah i'm not into like torture porn like i can't i can't look away that's the thing it's like <laughs> once i start watching it's like i got it. like i will finish it uh-huh. but i sh- but i shouldn't you know <laughs> so with those kind of movies i can't I mean, slashers are they're okay I, that's not really my thing mm-hmm. like i like I like ones that make you think where you get to kind of solve what's happening. I don't know if I need a happy ending necessarily, but... Well, that much is clear with this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember how it ended. I may not have ever seen the ending, to be honest. Like, I think there's so many pieces of it, but I blocked out all the actors. Oh, wow. I didn't remember any of the any of these amazing actors. Like It's a great cast. <laughs> the whole cast is like, they went on to have amazing careers right yeah i didn't remember any of them i just remember the dude in the spa in the mud baths (laughs) right i remember him and he wakes up and i remember that very vividly oh that'll definitely sink into your psyche for sure (laughs) so yeah let's get right into it the movie we're talking about today is the 1978 invasion of the body snatchers directed by philip kaufman it's closer to a remake of the 1956 movie adaptation of the 1955 book by Jack Finney, as opposed to a direct adaptation of the book because of the ending. And we'll get to the specifics in the plot discussion, but the book ends with the pods floating away back to space because they were intimidated by how great humanity's resistance was when they burned oh, the pods. wow. I think that's optimistic. Very, very. <laughs> And right away for the for the movie the next year, they were like, all right, well, we got to make this a little more ambiguous. And it is still happier than the 1978 version because the studio was like, we have to include something where the government is taking it seriously and they're coming in to save the day. But there's no actual closure because all the the, it ends with them just being like, "Okay, we're going to take this seriously. But there's no actual finish. Right. Yeah. Have you seen the original version? Negative. It is pretty good. I like this version better. I think that what's interesting about it is that it, it's very historically specific because it plays off of McCarthyism and the fear of communism pretty heavily. Got it. Got it. But part of what makes it a good source material and what makes this version so interesting is not only does the like noir camera work still look really fantastic when it's updated, yeah, but the flexibility of the alien-induced like dehumanization narrative is really flexible as a metaphor. In this case, they reshape it from political affiliation to mm. like sociological alienation kind of stuff. Right, like the Leonard Nimoy, like you're yeah, there was a lot of gaslighting. And I was trying to think because some of it felt now like very now Mm -hmm. you know as far as what like how COVID has invaded our lives you know and how we didn't see it coming and pretty much then it was everywhere but yeah that that particular thing of like someone is changing they're not themselves but they wouldn't appear to not be themselves to anyone who doesn't know them that is terrible that is terrifying (laughs) and I was saying to my husband like because I was talking through the whole film, which was maybe probably annoying, but <laughs> they could just shoot like people walking mm-hmm. and it was scary as hell. Yeah. And or they could be like, oh, we have a bunch of background actors in this shot and we don't even have to give them any direction because if they look into camera, it's even better. Remember <laughs> that shot where they're coming out of the health department and they're walking down the hall and that dude is just like face pressed against the door window. I, I was like, stresses me out. <laughs> I rewound it. I was like, hold up, hold up. 
Because if you're looking for it, it starts very early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a that's an interesting thing that the McCarthyism. I could see that. I felt like there was sort of a Twilight Zone, you know, felt like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right in that it does start very early. And it's the kind of stuff where if you're not looking for it, it kind of is easy to overlook it. You know, that that specific example of the guy up against the door, he's in it for one shot. And it's a shot that's panning. And when it comes to rest, he's blocked behind Elizabeth. Yeah. So you really get like just a little bit. (laughs) Very stressful. Very uh, incredible. The camera is so active and fantastic in this. It was really, as a director, I was like, oh my God, that's good. I want to shoot a movie that looks like this. You know, like some of the found shots or some of the, like there was a scene where I think he was chopping celery and she came in. And basically stood blocked behind like his bookshelf or something. Right. And I was like, in no no world now would you ever get away with a shot where you couldn't fully see the actor's face. But mm. it really demonstrated like how disconnected he was from what was going on for her. Yeah. Like even when he's, there was a shot, I was like, this is a shot. <laughs> and it didn't feel uh, student filmy. You know what I mean? It didn't feel o- overwrought or like done indulgently it felt intentionally creepatastic and that so that made it like work like when he came um he was breaking in to get her after he had called and the creep dentist husband right who'd already been turned had answered the phone and then hung up or she had tried to answer the phone but then he hung up so donald sutherland is coming up from the basement where he's broken in and the shot they did this a couple times where they kind of throw off your balance because of the way that the camera angle turns, especially because it's set in San Francisco and there are all these hills all over the places. So the houses are already kind of askew. Yeah. And so they come and they're above him. He's like, ha- it looks like he's half upside down, like <laughs> like one of those fun houses. And then it flip as he like leaves the staircase, it flips up with him and follows him. Yep. I don't know. It was, it was cool. It's really cool. It's, it's really fantastic. It's like you said, doesn't feel indulgent, but it is, there's a, a lot of variety. Even right at the very beginning, there's like a POV shot from a swing that's like just going back and forth. And did you notice who that priest was? Robert Duvall. What the fuck? <laughs> what the actual fuck? I was like, Robert Duvall is credited as priest on swing. What is happening? In what world? Because he had already turned, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That's the idea? Yeah. So oh I, I listened God. to the director's commentary as well. Oh, my God. You did your homework. And he was like, oh, yeah, my friend Robert was around. And he was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. And I won't take any money. Just put me in. <laughs> oh, like, my <laughs> God. Can you imagine? I'm just buddies with Duvall. <laughs> he's an amazing. He's one of my favorite actors. Oh, he's fantastic. And so what's interesting about this remake is it's part of what prompted analysis of the original, which is now in the Library of Congress, but at the time hadn't really made critical or financial waves. It had grown just enough cult fandom from showing on TV since it was cheap to merit this remake from a production standpoint. And this was successful enough to merit revisiting for comparison. Got it. So kind of an interesting symbiotic relationship between the two of them. Yeah. I mean, like an organism that thinks (laughs) 
like as one unit, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Like you said, this one takes place in San Francisco, which is obviously a major hub. And the pods being shipped out of at the end of the first one may well have ended up there. And with Kevin McCarthy, who stars as Miles Bennell in the 1956 Body Snatchers, he appears again in this one. Oh, he's the guy that hits the... He's the guy that hits the, oh my God. Right. I was like, this guy's famous. And <laughs> what is he doing this like three line part for? I remember him from comedies too, though. That little scene that he does in this one is basically the end of the first one. And <gasps> so oh. there's a really cool willingness to just keep the story going, a deliberate continuity where this one doesn't necessarily have to replace the original. It can just be more of it. I see. So a different character's perspective of it, basically. Got it. The location change from small town to big city is also important because it helps to shift the perspective of the film, like I said, from political to sociological, Mm. because Kaufman loved San Francisco and he considered it the bastion of progressivism and therapies that he said, quote, were designed to make you feel things were all right when they clearly were not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) All right. That's a perspective on therapy. Well, it wasn't specifically therapy at, at large, but like specific therapies, like the mud bath one that he that he that we see them operating. Okay, and everything. I got it, got it. Stuff that was just supposed to be more of a band aid than actual self examination because of that alienation and and. You know, it's very common, I think, in a city to, despite being surrounded by people, really isolate yourself and kind of just be like head down. I don't want to talk to my neighbors or anything. I'm just totally everyone leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. And it's such an interesting dynamic. There's such an interesting tension between everyone gathering in these hubs but also being more determined usually than in suburbs to stay isolated. Yeah, well, there's a, there's like a survivor thing that happens when you're in a city because like if you really took everything in all the time, mm. you wouldn't be able to function. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is so overwhelming sights. And, I mean, you remember like the first time you went to like a New York or a big city like that. It's like, whoa, how do people live like this? <laughs> like it's, it's totally overwhelming. And also the things that are meant to draw you in ultimately kind of initially fade in, fade into the background and you don't really see them anymore. Sure. So you're just seeing the things that you need to see in order to kind of get through your day. And you're really not looking anybody in the eyes. Like you're on a subway and everyone's having their own personal experience either in their book or like listening to a podcast or... But most people are not connecting with anyone else, even though you're literally touching them. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's wild. And it definitely can get overwhelming. You know, it's interesting even just going to a bigger city. Like, I live in Philadelphia. It's not the biggest city in the world, but it is yeah. certainly a city. And still, like, going around New York and being like, all right, time to navigate the subway system here is yeah. feels pretty overwhelming comparatively. So mm-hmm. if you don't live in the city at all... Uh, certainly, I, I think that it's understandable why you would be like, all right, let me just do what I need to do. <laughs> yeah, totally. As we said, absolutely fantastic cast in this movie. Uh, Brooke Adams plays Elizabeth Driscoll. Donald Sutherland, back from Europe to play Matthew <laughs> Bennell. We get Leonard Nimoy as Dr. David Kibner. He is really fun in this, uh, kind of breaking <laughs> out of Spock, but still having a little element of it. Yeah. And the Belichicks, Jack and Nancy, played by Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright. 
Two of my faves. Unbelievable. Oh, so good. They're both just so good. At first, I thought they were brother and sister, but then he called her his wife, and I was like, oh, okay. Didn't feel that sexual tension. <laughs> okay. No, he was saving that for the fly and Gina Davis. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Not many sets, a lot of practical locations, and Kaufman said that he's a big fan of holding a shot instead of chopping things up and editing, which I think works really well in this to create that mm -hmm. paranoid, unflinching eye. Yeah, for sure. He also said that the biggest challenge in this movie was honestly just the amount of night shooting that's in it. <laughs> that's a, that was a lot of night shooting. Yeah. And you can't, like, do night, night for day... Or day for night, I mean. Right. With that with that kind of thing. And they're shooting like in public places all over, like literally all over San Francisco. Yeah. With like hundreds of of actors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the the prop department must have been losing their minds. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many pods do we need? <laughs> what are they gotta be made out of? <laughs> He said that they got lucky with the goo because that was like $5 to just make oh. like a, a vial of goo that they just used the whole time. <laughs> yeah, you just, I mean, that's what the kids are playing with these days. It's just like Elmer's and like a couple other things. Yeah. Make it, make it Slimerino. Three and a half million dollar budget and it came out just before Christmas in 1978 and people were very interested in poddom and the loss of identity while searching for a better world thanks to the Jonestown mass suicide which was only a oh month my earlier. Oh god. Jeez Louise. Right. And so audiences showed up in droves for this earning just under 25 million and that's just domestic on that uh, three and a half million budget. So pretty dang good. Good job. Robert Duvall would have gotten a nice cut if he, <laughs> if, if he had demanded residuals. Yeah. And reception was pretty universally positive as well with Pauline yeah. Kael declaring it the movie of the year and Variety deeming it to completely validate the concept of remakes as a whole, which is very high praise. My goodness. Yeah. Although it did have its detractors, including you guessed it, blahip villain Roger Ebert, who called the praise for this one inexplicable in his review of the next remake. Guy doesn't like horror. He just doesn't, he doesn't like it. He never gives horror movies a good a thumbs up? Very infrequently. Very, very Aww. infrequently. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating. He's a great writer. There's no denying it, but... Um, he just doesn't get it. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, we know he's not our guy. That's, that's all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's all. Now, to get into the actual movie, I love this opening because it is so unambiguously sci-fi. You know, it's very easy, I think, to see a version with mm. a completely modern sensibility that has you as a viewer, like, questioning if this is happening the whole time. But I love that they just go for it. They're like, no, there's alien spores. The threat is real. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting because they're saying she's not crazy. Like, she's the only one that believes this. Right? And she's doubting herself, but we know she shouldn't be doubting herself. So it's even more terrifying. Totally. Yeah. yeah, that opening is so creepy. And I don't know. I mean, it's probably found footage. Who knows? Like, <laughs> I would be interested to know, like, how they actually shot or what, what those, like, little, like, I don't think it was FX. It was probably. He said it was just, like, really close-ups of, like, fluids and, and stuff that they had um, assembled. He said that they built it all. and uh, Yeah, yeah. It felt real. It yeah. felt like the, the cells were really, like, dividing and releasing and, and floating. I mean, when they just kind of, like, floated past Saturn, that was a little weird. Or Mars, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this would probably take a long time and. 
they're going slow and what are they in and how are they getting like what's propelling them it's in the middle of space they need like a boost you know something Um, solar winds solar winds yeah yeah i also like just even the text i thought was cool with like the cellular breakdown kind of already beginning on there and also you know starting from the aliens pov is kind of an interesting choice as well to have them be like well we have nothing here on this planet time to leave and everybody let's make our way to earth yeah just feels atypical yeah and maybe not like it wasn't endearing towards the aliens or anything but like when they talk about their position through like leonard nimoy later you're like oh i see that like but i didn't know like watching it to begin with i didn't know that they were leaving because the plant they were dying there or something like maybe you wouldn't have known that until the other half in like a star star trek movie or something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so giving it to us up front but it's also just so creepy because it's we don't understand it and we're like oh i should have paid attention in biology like (laughs) i feel like i would know more what's happening oh no And also, it doesn't feel that far from, like, possible. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, I think that that's exactly right, because, you know, they there's always, they talk about, like, oh, if alien life exists, it more than likely exists in some form of, like, bacteria or spore or something like that, as opposed to, like, a humanoid being that also happened to form. And so this does feel much more like an authentic possibility of an alien threat than just, mm. like, tiny men who come to Earth and say, uh, we have ray guns. Did this guy who wrote the book, Did do we know, did he write other books? I did not look that up. I didn't, okay. I didn't check. I wonder if, like, this is his genre, if he's always writing about this kind of spooky thing, or mm-hmm. if this was just his one prescient <laughs> moment. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, he just, the spores spoke to him, and he said, uh-huh. I gotta get this down. <laughs> <laughs> But they make it to Earth and they start to bloom with these beautiful pink flowers getting picked immediately by Elizabeth Driscoll. And there's also a woman encouraging a bunch of kids to pick them as well. Yeah, that was super creepy. Yeah, you, and you just hear Because at that point we know, like we know that bad things going to happen if, if people pick them because it's called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and we've seen some of the previews, so we know it's not going to end well for anybody that gets their fingers on these. Mm-hmm. And also the... The presumption at that point is that they've been there a while, yeah. right? Spreading and growing, and we don't know where they landed, if they landed other places in San Fran or if it's just San Fran. But we're following a botanist or like a like a health department scientist, basically, right. who just happens to find... Or I guess they're all over the city taking over, so. Yeah, yeah, this is, it's just, we only follow her story because she happens to follow up on it. But as we see, it's happening all over the city, you know, people are uh, getting taken over. And she does take this flower, and she thinks that it might be what she calls a gren, a completely new species resulting from two different plants cross-pollinating. And she also notes in a book, many of these are dangerous weeds and should be avoided. Characteristics include rapid growth and spread. It's like, all right, I get what you're doing here. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, okay. And uh, her seemingly vapid boyfriend, Jeffrey, doesn't want to hear about it. And he suggests that they head up to Vale for the weekend. And I love the very cool shots of like the double image of Jeffrey and the reflection over the house plants, planting the seeds, pun intended, of what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. Why does this dude, okay, Vale, like, is Vale like a close trip from San Fran? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. I don't think so. Must like, good skiing, any- though. <laughs> 
And even is it up? Like, I'm not even sure, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's over. I think it's over, but it might even be down. I don't know. He was a great, he was great because he was just totally, he's like, I guess they were trying to show us the pa- the passionate life that he lived, right? Right. Yeah, he had his athleisure wear on and everything. Yeah, and then he drops her into a kiss immediately, but with his headphones on, he's still watching the game. Yeah. And so he's kind of an asshole, and he's not really (laughs) listening to her, and so we don't really care when he gets taken over, because we want her to be with Donald anyway. Right. But yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, and this is where Donald shows up as well. Classic fisheye peephole shot. Love to see it. And uh, this is Matthew (laughs) Bennell from the Department of Health inspecting a restaurant and arguing that a caper is, in fact, a rat turd. That was... That was classic comedy. (laughs) And it's interesting because this director, one of his very first films was like a Second City alum film. Oh, wow. With like like some, like Severn Darden, who was one of the original inventors of long form improv kind of. And I think there were some other people in the film that were from that that world but uh it was just a it was like a classic comedy bit with like a uptight french like ratatouille dude and and donald sutherland who was not budging yeah very funny it's a really funny moment and it's funny too because it's one of the only real laugh moments in the movie and so it kind of mm-hmm. sets you up to be like oh maybe this will have some levity throughout some it laughs yeah <laughs> not the case there were a couple other a couple laugh but no, nothing like that yeah me, no 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 me. not totally and he comes out to find his windshield broken from some employees but he just shrugs it off i like again some more foreshadowing with like the tendrils of like the cracks in the or like plant roots that we see growing and the glaring faces of the cooks where later on you'd be like well are they pod people or are they just mad at him yeah it's cool stuff and it, and it, and that shot is repeated throughout as we drive with him later when he when he and is it elizabeth yeah are together they're shooting through the broken windshield out at the broken world yeah Yeah, uh, that's a great point. And also, I think that this movie in general, I think, is a really interesting demonstration of the Kuleshov effect, which the idea of, like, the things that you see before a shot will completely alter your interpretation of that shot. Mm. Whether the things you see before are happy will make a face look happier or, like, or bemused or whatever. Yeah. And to that point, I think, you know, here we see these cooks who are looking, who are glaring at at Donald Sutherland and we're like, oh, they're angry because we just saw him being a jerk in this restaurant. But later on, there's an amazing shot where it's just a bunch of faces looking out of bus windows. And every every single window, every single window is full of a face that's looking directly at her. And half of them are like leaning on their hand. Yeah. And the director said that that was just live footage. But because of what we've seen up to that point, it takes on this incredible fearfulness and and suspicion. It's really incredible. That, like I said, you could, you're just filming a, like two people walking down the street and it's, and it's like, Oh God, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, it must've been some of it easier to shoot because they were like, Oh, that, that background actor stood still in a weird way and then (laughs) crossed over and it didn't look natural at all. And he's like, no, that's perfect. perfect. (laughs) Don't change a thing. 
you know? Definitely, definitely. We get a big shot of Jeff sleeping, which is, as we know, how they get you. Ooh. And she wake, Elizabeth wakes up to find him the next morning dressed in a suit, stiffly cleaning up some pod residue, which he not only carefully throws away, but then walks all the way outside where a garbage truck is waiting for him to dump it directly in. And the whole garbage truck is full of those, like, spider webs. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> The webs, the webs. And Donald Sutherland's cutting out that article about webs covering the city. Yeah. Elizabeth heads into work. She passes a guy playing banjo with his dog. Not the actor, but the actual banjo playing was Jerry Garcia. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Yeah. He said that one of the one of the people who worked in the office was like friends with him. And so he said that he would do that. And it's so funny how, you know, just like Robert Duvall, they were just like, all right, like, we'll just get you to do a little tiny piece. (laughs) That's amazing. So the most like (laughs) tripped out banjo player in the world. (laughs) But it's a California song. It's it's about I remembered it being about California, but it felt like it was deliverance. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it did. And also in the commentary. Oh, and that dog. Oh. (laughs) Okay. When we come back to the dog. Okay. Also in the commentary, the director was like, I think it's stressful to see someone in a suit running, (laughs) which I agree with. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's why um, that happens as we lead in. But one of the things I really like about this movie is that we get a lot of these shots where the scenes don't just start on our main characters. We get some time to, like, observe the world, which has a lot of these weirdos and people being affected by the pods just kind of doing their things in the background. And Mm -hmm. then the camera rests on our main characters. Yeah, yeah. It's That happens... Once you notice it, like once you realize that lots of people are quote unquote changing, then every shot feels meaningful. Yes. Elizabeth tries to tell Matt and he shrugs off her concerns about Jeff as all dentists are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's true though, right? That's the truest statement. That's really the through line of this movie and I will stand by it. Because what person would choose that as a career? It's a, it's a strange choice. Very strange. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if this is so rude to all of the dentists that listen to this. Well, sound off. Tell us why you picked it. It's a weird choice. And But Jeff just continues to act strangely. He doesn't even want to go to the Warriors game that night. Huge deal for him. Yeah, he gave away the tickets, and he Ugh. was just so passionately watching the game that he couldn't even finish kissing her. <laughs> right. And uh, they were he, she was going to go, too. And he was like, no, we're just not going. <laughs> you know, I was surprised that the Warriors have been around for that long, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> she runs over to Matt's place, and she says, look, I know this is going to sound insane, but Jeffrey is not Jeffrey. Great line. This is sort of repeated by people in various states as the movie goes. Really fantastic. And Matt suggests that she see his psychiatrist friend who can help eliminate possibilities. He's having an affair or is gay or has a social disease or he's Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it's clear that they have an easy friendship, although he does seem to be interested in her as more than that. And he cooks her some stir fry and he plies her with wine. But... What I really love about the scene, and the director talks about it being very um, deliberate, is that this really shows their humanity. And it's a scene that kind of demonstrates exactly what would be taken away by becoming pod people. You know, these little moments of, like, doing the crazy eye spin thing. (laughs) Yes. That's called, we call that shark eyes in my family. Oh, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) 
The next day, though, at a dry cleaners, thinking he's a doctor, one of the employees tells Matt something very similar about his wife, that it's not her, that she's different. Yeah. And he's beginning to get disturbed, and he can't get a hold of Elizabeth until she grabs him as they enter an elevator, and she immediately begins to cry. She's overwhelmed. She tells him that they're all recognizing each other all over town, these Mm -hmm. different people. And she Mm -hmm. followed Jeff, watching him do this all over town. And they're doing, they're doing like what cells do, like two will go and then they'll meet up with four with the other two and then they'll 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 break off and go a different direction with a different person yeah and sometimes they have like a fabric wrapped thing in their hands and i'm like what is that what is that because it is is it a pod i don't think so it's like we're not sure what it is right you know what i mean one thing that i also like about these moments of like oh they're just recognizing each other it kind of plays into some of the like class signifiers and fads that I think are so, like sort of a, a way that people do in cities used to be like, okay, uh, I am going to connect with this person because I view them as like part of my group. Um, right. They're one of the pod people too. They have this purse that is the hot new thing and they can afford mm. that. So they are worthy of, of me breaking the, the bubble or whatever. Mm. It's just a, a cool little thing that, doesn't get played up super hard, but it feels like that is kind of a metaphor that does lay under the entirety of the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Except for everybody's a pod person by the end, At the right? end, yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got the purse. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, everybody wants to get rich and get those class signifiers and uh, all the relaxation and, and safety that that provides and become a pod person. The pulsing score is great as we see the flashback it sounds music it sounds like a ufo but then also maybe like a heartbeat going faster it's really creepy (laughs) yeah and and she says i've lived in the city all my life but somehow today i felt that something had changed the people were different not just jeffrey but everybody Uh uh-huh and then he's like have i got the guy for you You're going to go talk to my friend, Leonard Nimoy, who's going to tell you that everything you believe is wrong. (laughs) Great. What a great friend. Thanks so much. Doubt everything that she says. She's clearly having a mental breakdown. But also, like, in his best interest, like, that also was endearing to me for him as a character because... If she's thinking, like, if there was some woman that I had loved all my life and I had never really been able to tell her and there was trouble in her relationship and she was like, he's not acting like himself, I'd be like, leave him. (laughs) Leave him. I'm I'm right here. Like, save the best for last, Vanessa Williams, you know? And he doesn't do that. He's like, I want her to be happy, even if it's not with me kind of thing. So so then go talk to this, you know, this psychologist who's going to make you doubt all of your thoughts and fears. <laughs> yes, yeah. He. Uh, all we can hope is that he doesn't know that that's going to be the tone of this meeting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they do head for this book party, but this is uh, on the way there. That's when the guy rushes their car. This is uh, yes. Kevin McCarthy. That's amazing. It, oh, man. His portrayal of this guy, so harried and his hair is wild. It's incredible as he smashes on the windshield. Yeah. I love that that's a connection to the initial movie because I, I didn't know that, but... But I mean, I feel like if I was a, a young adult in in 1978, it would have been a really cool, like, touchstone. Definitely. And 
it's cool because it doesn't, it works as that amazing connection point, but it also does help to reinforce those themes of alienation because we see that Elizabeth is like, we should help. And Matthew locks the doors immediately. Right, right, right. <laughs> and a crowd chases after this guy and he runs off before just getting nailed by a car and everyone around him is just looking over the corpse. Very grim. <laughs> oh yeah, they're all just standing really close to each other. So creepy. Yep. And they finally get to this book party. They meet uh, Jack Belichick, the poet, who is immediately so Jeff Goldblumy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you saw it, I was like, oh, everybody knew this kid was going to be a star. <laughs> you know who he reminded me of was Zach Woods, my friend, Zach Woods, who, like, he's got a real Zach Woods energy. Like, it's a very full of life and embracing all the ways that he's different. And I, I just, the, even the body shape is similar. Yeah, I love definitely. it. Uh, yeah, he, he's really fantastic in this. I love, he, you know, he's ragging on the host of the party. He says he dashes off a new psychology book every six months as opposed to his deliberate wordsmithing. And he's actually talking to Philip Kaufman's wife, Rose, uh, the director's oh, wife right there. Oh, interesting. That's why they don't show her face at all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Another really cool shot here as they're in the corner of the party on the phone and there's the mirror behind them again uh-huh. reflecting the and fun distorting. house mirror that was a really cool shot. Yes. And Elizabeth is pulled away by the sounds of someone causing a fuss. Again, it's not my husband, it's an imposter despite being the same down to the scars. And the crowd around her looks completely unfazed as host and pop psychologist David Kibner convinces her to calm down and accept her husband, Ted, who Elizabeth recognizes as someone that Mm. met with Jeffrey. Yeah. You know, like you said, this guy is gaslighting not just Elizabeth, but this woman in this moment as well. And it's such a great, like, fear is immediately struck into us as an audience being like, is he just a bad psychologist or is he a pod person? (laughs) Yeah, I don't, like, my opinion was no. At this point, he wasn't yet. Yeah. But- He could have been. Right. It just makes you question his level of complicity and that paranoia kind of uh, transposes onto us as well as an audience. Right. Don't ask questions. Right. (laughs) Go with the flow. You're You're acting so weird. I mean, clearly that guy, her husband was like a real weirdo, like Mm. a real pod, like an extra, like one of the founding pod people, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Pod person prime. Exactly. Her and him and Jeffrey, right? Yeah. Can we see him again? Yes, yeah, so we we do we do see him. In they the get hallways, into, the, yeah. into the into the car together. They all get in uh, at the same time as well. Oh right. Ew. She she does meet with with David. Elizabeth does, and and it's interesting because of the falseness of his sympathy in these moments. You know, he feels so patronizing. He says, oh, this is a very popular thing in this week. Uh, Six patients in one week. People are becoming less human. And she's like, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not, I'm not saying that I want to leave my relationship. And and he just says, like, he refuses to hear her, like you said. And and he says they don't want to deal with the responsibility, the responsibility of human connection, of dealing with emotions, of having to confront things. And he demonstrates this by yelling at Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) <laughs> Poor Jeff Goldblum. Oh, man. He cannot catch a break in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go over there and talk to that woman with the red hair. She thinks you're a good writer. <laughs> Just wanted to get him out of the way. He does calm her down, and she agrees to consider it. And she leaves with Matt, who David tells her that she should be fine. It's like a hallucinatory flu going around that clears up in a day or two. Ooh. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. 
Jack goes back home to his wife, Nancy, working at the Belichick mud baths. This is Veronica Cartwright. Like I said, as always, incredible in this movie. Yeah. She's really great, but he heads into the mud bath himself and is crying one single tear streams down his face. Great one shot as well that starts when he enters into the building and then just to show that it's an actual building and not a set, they uh, slide in behind him as he uh, Mm. walks in. It's just nice nice work on the camera. Yeah. He heads into the mud baths himself, like I said. One of the patrons is reading a book, but he's just staring at it. Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this guy gave Veronica Cartwright's character, Nancy, uh, a plant last time, since she seemed to be pretty fond of them. And as they leave together, the music fades in the mix until it's just the sound of breathing and what sounds like hatching. And it is a truly terrifying moment for me when that music fades down. Yeah, because the because the only person that's still left in there, we think, is Jack, right? Right, right. Because everybody else is cleared out. So what is that? Where's it coming from? Yes. And we see what that noise was when Nancy goes back there and finds a veiny, mostly formed body. <laughs> it's so gross. Oh, terrifying. They call Matt, who examines it, and it's grody as hell, but it has no details. They said it's like an adult, but also like a fetus. No fingerprints, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like a, it's brand new, doesn't have any of the things that would make it, like, distinct yet, but but it's very tall. It's It's the size of... Uh, Jack. Yeah. Then he tries to call Elizabeth, but she's fading fast and starting to decompose, as we can see from uh, from her cheek. So it's a good thing that he leaves when he does. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise, see you later. Right. But he goes to check on her and he says, okay, Belichick, you call David, have us meet him here. But Jack is also starting to exhibit the warning signs. He had a bloody nose, dry throat, chapped lips and dry skin. He, he's looking worse for wear. Yeah. And all he wants to do is lie down right. and go to sleep. I'm just going to take a quick nap. Oh, no. Bad idea. Bad idea, Jack. It's it's more defined. It looks more like Jack himself now. And as she peers at it, the eyes open. Oh, my gosh. Awful. And then because they interrupt it by her waking yeah. up Jack, it starts to like pour blood from its nose and the hairs yeah. are reaching for Jack. It's yeah. just so much packed into this little scene. Really great. Yeah, I think that that has is really singed in my fiber, my emotional, wherever I he- hide my emotions in my body, it's like <laughs> it's lodged there permanently. The the first the discovery of that body because it is straight up terrifying looking, mm-hmm. and then also the moment when those eyes open. Yeah. Really scary. And they dash for the exit only to find it blocked by Dr. Dave. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Who's definitely acting weird now. Definitely. Weirder. Weirder. (laughs) That's why I think maybe he was just an a-hole before and now he's a pod a-hole. I think you uh, may be right. And Matt sees Jeff watching TV with the headphones on, but it's basically nothing. And the director was like, this is what commercials are doing to us. We'll just watch anything now, which I thought was funny. Uh, uh, uh. But he's not, is he watching? A, oh, I, okay. That was a, supposed to be a commercial for yeah. something. Yeah. Well, we can't hear the sound because he's got headphones on, but it was a, it was two clocks. And I thought, I thought they were watching for their meeting time or something. Oh, no, I think it's just a commercial. For what? Time? <laughs> the concept time of time. Se- time cereal? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love, you know, he he uses this distraction, like you said, to break in. And yeah. he finds Elizabeth passed out on the bed with her own pod person doppelganger growing peacefully in the plants. Uh, very scary oh, to see the more formal really, 
really creepy. Mm-hmm. And he hides when Jeff comes to check on her. And I love these little shadowy close-ups on his face. Again, yeah, that updated yeah, noir light. look. Yeah. yeah. A little bass groove, too, of sneaking around. Starts real <laughs> quiet. <laughs> yep. Da, 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 da. And he, Fireman, carries her right out the damn window while Jeff is turned around. The music keeps increasing in intensity as he peels the hell out of there with Elizabeth in tow. Uh, Dr. Dave says Wait, there- and oh. then what happens? Do you remember the scream- that's the oh. first time we hear the scream, right? Because she's gone, right? Oh, it's it's awful. Which means that that pod person has died, I think, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one, because he woke her up and it was so close to being formed. Uh, oh, it, it, uh, God. <laughs> this is it's, a night, okay, like, imagine like a nine-year-old or however old I was seeing this and thinking, I can't go to sleep. <laughs> I can't go to sleep. This is what this is what's gonna happen. Like no way, (laughs) no way. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, and that screech, the way that they like that screech is so. It sounds otherworldly. I don't know how they created that, but oh man, it really hits a nerve. It does. Yeah, they said that it's like a couple of things blended together, including I think the primary sound is like a pig squeal is like the (gasps) main ingredient. Oh yeah, getting killed or something. Who knows? Oh, my God. That's tough stuff. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Dave says there's nothing there, but Nancy notices the window in the back of the mud baths has been opened, and who should be outside but another garbage truck? Huh, these seem to be popping up a lot when suspicious going-ons are going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but since there's nothing there, Matt calls the cops to report a body at Jeff's, but it's been replaced by leaves and a pot, which we saw Jeff carrying. Uh, I think this is a very funny moment as well, actually, when you see the little, like, pot like, there as the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did we see him carry that? When? When he's going, so as um, Matt is, like, sneaking out with oh, Elizabeth. he's carrying that back up there? Yeah, um, or it, maybe it was a garbage bag or something. Oh, okay. but Or, like, a garbage can, but he's carrying something that looks like a pot or something up to up the stairs. So uh, Now, what are all the, okay, can I, okay, okay, I'm putting something together. So all of the spider webs are disintegrated people? Yeah, it's what's left of, of the corpses. <laughs> Oh, my God. So he was throwing away his old self when we right. saw him in the morning. <gasps> oh, God. So then he's taking up a garbage can or whatever to, to collect Elizabeth's remains. Yes. For her pod person to have grown. So every pod person has grown. Yeah. It, overnight, quickly, while they're snoozing. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay. And then how is it transmitted? Like, because when the, like, pods are opening and birthing the the people, like a real cabbage patch situation. Yeah. <laughs> is it, like, the spores that are going out? Or, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how, are, how is it an infecting I think them? each one, like, connects to a person because... They mentioned that everybody got, like, a bouquet of flowers from somebody, you know? Yeah. Jeff got Elizabeth flowers, and Nancy got flowers from the patron who's, who noticed that she liked them and everything. Yeah. So I think that, like, tucked away. Oh, yeah, and then Jeff Goldblum, he he, pull, he pulls it out uh, of the thing and, and goes, like, what the heck is this? And he's playing with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's, like, if it's just, like, around, it, like, mentally locks onto someone and starts like drawing yeah. them into it. Got it. And uh, Dr. David is, he's so suspicious in this moment. <laughs> like, 
But he convinces the cops to let them handle it among themselves, and Jeff is on his best behavior, so they gather some clothes for Elizabeth and they leave. And they try to explain to David, now that Elizabeth is awake again, people are being duplicated, and once you're duplicated, you're in the conspiracy. And I, one of my favorite parts of this movie is just that they push back on him. You know, he is like, oh, this is crazy. And Nancy goes, why are you trying to make us think we're seeing things? This gaslighting motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they did. They were like, why would we all have seen the same thing? Why would we all be making this up? Why, Why is this something that we would want to believe? Exactly. Especially for someone like... Nancy and and Jack, who are clearly happy together, even though yeah. they are less wealthy and, and he's frustrated in his job, clearly their relationship is still good. And so the yeah. his idea from before of like, oh, you just don't want the personal responsibility of a relationship yeah. really rings false here. Right, right, right. Matt says he wants to call in like cholera outbreak level quarantining, and he wants David to have the mayor accept his phone call since the mayor is a client of Dr. David's. Yeah. And David says he'll do it and he'll be in touch before getting in a car with Jeff and Ted. Oh, ding, 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 (laughs) ding, ding, ding. And then he said, the sooner, the better. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the shoe drops and we finally get blessed confirmation that he is indeed (sighs) one of the pod people. Yes. Now, Nancy and Elizabeth are getting revved up. Nancy is like, we eat junk and we breathe junk. We'd never even notice with all of our impurities. Uh, I feel as though I've been poisoned today. But here is where it gets um, interesting for first time viewers, because Nancy takes this as confirmation of like other theories that the aliens have come to Earth before and mated with monkeys to make humans. But it's like, well, maybe in this world (laughs) where there are alien spores and stuff. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah, she seems to to be uh, to lean more uh, crunchy. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. She's uh, she clearly had these uh, other conspiracies that she had at least considered uh, yeah. as possibilities. She's but willing they also to believe talked in the about like why do we have? I mean, there's that that moment where they say why 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 would they come like you think they have to come in big metal ships? Like, yeah. no, like why would they do that? That'd be such a, you know, that we would shoot them down out of sure. the sky. They have to figure out a different way to get here. That's right. The pattern of downplaying and interference continues. Uh, David is unavailable and a government agency tells Matt to just keep it quiet when he gets them on the phone. Really cool shot here with just um, a peek out the window just to show that it's not a set. You see City Hall out the window there. Yeah. There's also interference with Elizabeth too, though, who tries to test the flower at work. Her boss says, you've been late a lot and you're behind. I'll do it and it'll take 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) All of those people are already pod people though. That's right. And also like there was a little bit of Uh, Like, okay, we think the whole city's turning into pod people, but we're still asking, like, a clear pod person for help. Like, some of that was a little, like, off, like, weird to me. Yeah, well, I think maybe they're just, uh, they don't want to accept how far it's gotten, you know? There's there's a real instinct, I think, to be like, well, this is huge. I can't handle this. So time to run it up the flagpole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, as we see here by the mayor's special assistant telling him to be discreet, they are clearly the top rung that can do anything about this. As you say, yeah. they've infiltrated all these other uh, all these other areas. The government preparedness agency call specifically says, you haven't even analyzed the tissue. How can you possibly know? Just keep it quiet. 
and the editing just gets more frantic and the yeah. buildings like close in a little bit and it's just this really incredible building of paranoia in this moment as the breadth of the uh, of the conspiracy really kind of takes hold on them. Also, I felt like again, maybe this is because he doesn't want to fully admit that that they're not going to have any help, that he's mm-hmm. going to have to be the one to do something about it. But like every call he makes, they say his name <laughs> from a payphone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like why is he saying his name if if we know that there are plants like plants? Okay. Real <laughs> plants. If we know that there that that there's infiltration happening, like why are we using our real names letting why is he calling from all these different locations if not to get information? And then he's like calling from a payphone and then that dude like comes up to the window, remember? That's uh, the director. So perfect. Yeah. So creepy. I love it. And we also get one of the creepiest moments in the whole in the whole movie, for my money at least, that concludes this sort of scene where he revisits the dry cleaner and the guy goes, No, no, she's much better now. And she just like looms behind him, smiling. (laughs) Yeah, and he and he says it in the pod voice, too. So we like know it's (laughs) oh, Okay. That's right. And Elizabeth also gets visited by the woman from the party who also says, look, I'm completely normal again. Yeah. And her hair's all done. That moment really reminded me of like a Rosemary's baby where she's losing her mind. She feels like she's losing her mind and everybody's like, it's fine. Mm -hmm. There was that movie Hereditary is a similar, there's a similar, the woman who's from the cult, who's also in Handmaid's Tale, who has basically been planted to like groom her. Yeah. Or like get her into the cult. It's just, it was. It felt like a really similar thing. Yeah, yeah. The grooming is really upsetting. <laughs> it really makes you oh. feel uncomfortable. And, and yeah, for sure. And the betrayal. It, it really is wild. There's a radio news station that seems to be down. But David is back, and he gives Elizabeth a sleeping pill. She does hesitate for a moment before popping it in. She takes it, though. She does take it, and David tells Matt, tomorrow she'll be good as new, which is a funny (gasps) turn of phrase. Oh, no. (laughs) I didn't catch that. I think I started blocking out whatever Nimoy said, because I knew he was on the wrong side of history. Yeah. The Belichicks are also staying in that house, and David advises Matt to get some sleep. Which Matt does fall asleep outside, and as he does... This scene, (laughs) wow. (laughs) The little threads, I mean, it looks like hair, Mm -hmm. grows up out of the pod and around his arm, (laughs) sucking. And then we kind of get to see for the first time what happens when a pod person is born, right? Oh, Oh, yeah, the... The flower itself, the middle is like fleshy and gross. It's like brain. Yeah. It looks like a brain. Oh, it's awful. And then the flower wilts and out emerges this duplicate of of, of oh. Donald Pleasance, fleshy and disgusting. And we see another pod of the same magnitude doing the same nearby. Yeah, and it's all it sounds like a heart, like an in the inside of a of a of a like what a it the sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. Like that. And Matt seems to be struggling to wake up as the replica starts to take on his features. And the others take on the appearance of the folks inside. But finally, the screaming of Nancy gets through to him as she finds this awful scene. They're back and they're growing. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's just so great. She's fantastic. And the ones for the people who are awake 
start to seize up and they realize that they have to wake the others. But when Matt reports these bodies to the police, they know his name without having said it. And that paranoia is just right back. It's such an incredible confluence of the two areas of the fear for this movie. Yeah. Really converging, you know, the the disgusting body horror of this thing emerging versus yeah. the the fear that everyone is in on some grand plot really coming together it's fantastic yeah there's nowhere to turn yeah the power suddenly gets cut and the police are already there and barricading the street and the operator well, that was pretty creepy when they looked out the window and saw just cuz throughout you've seen like all of a sudden like a group of people are running at an in, an unnatural speed at the same in the same direction. Yeah. And it's like in nature, when you see some, like a vine grow, like in fast forward, you know, that's what it felt like. Yeah. You were seeing. And this, and that happened when they looked down out of the window. Definitely. And they go to make a break for it, but Matt stops to smash in the head of his double, which I, this is a very grody scene, but I thought it was pretty fun too. (laughs) I mean, it looked really real. A lot of this stuff. I was like, how did they get this? I mean, the one that looked like a baby that was growing, I was like, who's that supposed to be? But that didn't look real. But yeah. the rest of them, because it was really them covered in this jazz, <laughs> j- covered in this jazz, I'll say, uh, it looked like, I mean, it was, it looked really real and disturbing. And so when he, he like took a shovel to his own brain, Oof. his pod brain. Yeah. And then immediately... The screams. Oh my gosh, yes. All the neighbors are screaming and pointing at him from the shadows, and the uh. police are chasing him. It's incredible. And and they all manage to duck under some stairs to avoid the chase, but the pattering of the feet lends a really cool percussion track to the score in this scene. Mm-hmm. And it really rocks, especially because it's the last thing to fade out. You know, the score kind of goes, and then you stop hearing the people running. Just really, uh, again, Every element of this movie really feels like it's functioning at a super high level. Yeah, totally. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) They split up when a helicopter gets involved and Jack acts as like a distraction running down the street with Nancy. He's going to sacrifice himself. That's right. And And then she goes with him. I think he intended to save her too, but... We think she's lost. Yeah. We'll we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, Matt and Elizabeth have to kind of play it cool. But as their paranoia starts to get the best of them and they start to run, they get into a cab for an airport carried by Don Siegel himself, the director from the original movie. Oh, really? Yeah. That's who the taxi driver was? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Lots of cool little connections. I I love it. What do they call those Easter eggs? (laughs) Yeah. The cabbie says something strange to dispatch and they're all constantly looking behind them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he tries to dig into their story, and they pull into a police checkpoint. This really did make me laugh as well, when they're already out the damn door, Uh (laughs) the cop comes uh over. (laughs) You just see the door swinging shut. He said, both of them or something. I can't remember. He said, what what have you got? And he's like, backseat, both of them, or something like that. And the the door just swings shut. They're already hightailing it. Great Dutch angle as well as they run. Really makes things feel off kilter. And then they uh, they hide in the health department office. And finally, their feelings for each other are realized in this this hellish moment. And they give each other a gentle smooch. Tiniest of tiny kisses. (laughs) Twice. And they're so sleepy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can't sleep. Can't sleep. Can't sleep. But uh, they do. And uh, it's only it's only by sheer chance that they haven't been found. And they wake up 
to the noise of the crowd of people being given pods to further spread this. And again, you know, we've seen how high up it's gone, but it's shocking to see how many people have changed as well, you know, all grouped mm-hmm. together like this. The yeah. only thing that looks different is that they're holding the pods. And Elizabeth is like, they control the whole city. I can't go on. I want to just go to sleep. <laughs> so they, they find the coworkers amphetamines. <laughs> Right, 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 right. And the the directions say to take one, but they go to take five. (laughs) Which is the great, the only reason they don't fall asleep when they get those sedatives. That's right. And I thought it was really interesting, again, kind of looking into that metaphor a little bit, the tension between like individuality and isolated conformity for functionality's sake that we talked about at the beginning, just living in a city, um, I think is most explicitly depicted in the sleep versus stimulants dynamic, Mm. kind of how easy it is to just go along and let sleep take hold, as opposed to the wakefulness of self-actualization and engaging with the world. Okay, damn, George. (laughs) The drugs, unfortunately, are not a permanent solution, though, because of the stress that they, and being an individual who's forced to deal with the trauma of just having to exist, puts on the body. And Mm. so David walks in with Jack and Jeff and several of the others, sedatives in hand, ready to deliver them from anxiety through suppression of self. Right, and then that's when we kind of get more information about what's happening and and that they're going to remove all worry from them when they are are transformed into these other beings. That's right. Yeah, they'll have the same life, the same clothes, the same car, but as for their personalities, well, they'll be reborn into an untroubled world, free of fear and hate, their minds and memories absorbed and intact. Sedated though they are, they do have these amphetamines rushing through their body. <laughs> so so Matt and Liz take advantage of a moment of distraction. They bottle Nimoy in the head. They stab Jack in the neck with some darts as he monologues about how the function of oh, life is to so survive. Sad. So <laughs> sad. With a dart that he had stolen off a dartboard like a couple scenes before. That's right. Great payoff. He <laughs> set off and mm-hmm. payoff. There you mm-hmm. go. They flee and they run into Nancy, but both just kind of like stare at each other. I love this moment of being unsure if they can trust each other. Yeah, because she's always been a real weirdo. Right. <laughs> But they are all legit, and Nancy tells them that the pod people can be fooled by not showing emotion. We're going to beat them, says Matthew. (laughs) Okay, man. But outside, the crowds are getting more pods bound for cities outside San Diego or San Francisco, and a fucked up dog with a human face shows up. And then Elizabeth has a natural human reaction, and then everybody knows that she's not a pod person. That's right. Boy, this dog. That was very terrifying. It's funny because so it runs up and initially when you can see that it's like just a happy dog running and it has the eyes are not filled in in the first shot, but it makes it even worse. It makes it way scarier that it just has these like holes where eyes would be. And then as it gets closer to you, it's it's growing in. Yes. And it's and it's the banjo man's face, right? Exactly. Oh, God, it's terrifying. (laughs) And it licks its chops. And yeah, she she gives a very well-deserved scream. Uh, but then they're being chased again. They sure are. And they run for this truck and they clamber aboard and it takes them to Pod Central, as the director called it, which is a growing facility for the pods. Got it. Elizabeth hurts her ankle on a ladder, though, and the pain will reveal her as they walk through and she's freaking out and still sedated. And as Matthew declares his love, she says, I can't, I can't. It's all too much. Even even this emotional yeah. expression is too much. It's time to just go to sleep. Yeah. Now- there's a bagpipe playing from the ships. and Amazing obvious- Grace, which sounds like a funeral <laughs> processional. 
Yes. And obviously these emotionless jabronis wouldn't be playing music, especially not something soulful like Amazing Grace. Right. So, With a bagpipe. Right? Such a weird <laughs> the, choice. The most emotional of instruments. <laughs> it kind of is. <laughs> And so Matthew says to stay there for Elizabeth and he'll go looking for it. Instead, though, the music cuts out and turns to the radio as we see pallets of pods being loaded. Onto a giant ship. And then when he goes back to Elizabeth, she's a snoozer. She's a snoozing. She's a gone. She's gone. Right. For good this time. And that was a very scary scene. When she crumples? Oh when my her gosh. face crumples. Because I don't know how they filmed that exactly, but it looked like they had attached some kind of sticky, you know, like some glue that dried or something, and then they were pulling at it in different yeah. angles that made it look like her skin was being caved in upon itself. Oh. Oh my gosh. It's disgusting. She becomes like a husk, and it, like, yeah, it just, it's gross. But her double... <laughs> quickly pops up from the naked, grass. Naked as a jaybird. <laughs> That's right. And she says, they were right. It's great. Join us. Oh. He does not a- agree to that, though, and he flees back into the facility, chopping down lights to cause a fire and try and burn the place down. You know, I absolutely must respect this uh, desire to not go gentle into that good night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, how is this going to... Like, I, I, I half believed that that... Like, I could see... The lights, I guess, sparking with with the water that's come, you know, like maybe there was some sort of electrocution thing that happened. But the fires, I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure of how I if I believed it all, but I I appreciated the effort, <laughs> particularly flammable pods. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Now, I love the scene. It's great fun pyrotechnics. You get the melting doubles, which is really gross. <laughs> and then absolutely horrific when Elizabeth's double rolls up resignedly and just points at him and screams that inhuman Still scream. Still naked as a jaybird. <laughs> and this time she has like a lizard tongue. Mm, Did you see that? Like gross. her tongue was weird. Her, it <laughs> was weird. And she pointed at him. Ugh, that was really scary. Really awful. And, and Matt is pursued some more, but he hides under a grate. And one of them says, well, we'll get him. He can't stay awake forever. Really, really great line, especially because it then, you know, it cuts, but they are actively looking for him. And we don't know in that moment when it fades back in for the next scene, whether he's been found out or not, if he is a pod person or if just hiding. It's such a great way to establish one last question before the last scene. And he does, he walks around the health department, he sees Elizabeth there, and everything is ground to a halt, and he blends in, and he walks around the city, and there's some new, like, fucked up trees growing in the in the city. Yeah, uh-huh, I saw those. They look kind of like Joshua trees. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, uh, it was very strange looking, and, uh, he hears Nancy calling his name and she looks excited to see him and in this moment his eyes widen and his finger raises to point at her as he unearths his own unholy scream and she's overcome with dread and so the heck am i as the movie cuts to black great incredible great film yeah i love this it's a really interesting ending it differs from the original like i said in that the fbi in this moment will definitely not come to the rescue they're all Mm -hmm. damn pods already yeah yeah, everybody's been overtaken, clearly. Exactly. And this lack of faith in public servants is, of course, indicative of the times after Vietnam and Watergate. However, mm-hmm. unlike the original, 
where we don't know what happens to the main guy, they choose a different ambiguity where we do get closure for our quote-unquote hero, where that heroic impulse that he had isn't enough, and at the end, our sole survivor is a secondary character. Pretty unique and interesting. I think that's a really cool way to end the end the story. Yeah, and also we get that she's, she's not gonna make it. I yeah, think, she's next. Right? Yeah. Well, I think probably, but... No, no, for sure closure, but uh, but who knows? Uh, yeah, I, I think probably. <laughs> it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. And now, Lennon, we have reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but <laughs> is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm gonna let you start. <laughs> oh God, George, you know, for me, this film, this is a film that really traumatized a tween. And has stayed inside of my muscle memory. <laughs> when I watched it, I curled up onto the couch into like the fetal position, essentially. <laughs> Talked through the whole thing because it was still as terrifying as whenever Saturday afternoon I saw it to begin with. And it just holds up. I think it was so artfully done. It felt like the people who were making it were having a good time, which I think always makes a good film, but without the indulgence that we talked about. And I mean, bottom line, it's just scary and creepy as hell. (laughs) And every shot adds to that. And if you can create suspense in the mundane, you have done something, uh, you know, extraordinary. Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that it is, like I said, just executing every aspect of the movie at such a high level. The fact that the camera work is so spectacular, still maintaining a lot of the noir elements of the original, but updating it in a way that feels fresh, still Mm. has these incredible like the the swinging POV shot and all these cool little flip around moments and stuff that alone would make it a really fantastic movie but the fact that it has this wonderful flexible metaphor that or and and the storyline of it can be applied into kind of however you want to look at it the performances are just outrageously good outrageous i mean you don't always get that the Mm -hmm. commitment was there and the believability was there like you really believe that these people were going through this yes absolutely and above all else at the end of the day this movie is still scary it is still a frightening movie the topic is scary the execution is scary it it holds up in in however many years later you know this came out in 1978 now in 2022 this is it looks great it scares you to your core mm-hmm. on both a logical and a visceral level it's just yeah. the best horror movie ever made <laughs> <laughs> Lennon, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. My pleasure. Please tell people where they can find anything uh, that you might have coming up, your social medias, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you can find me at my name, Lennon Parham, on Instagram or Twitter. And I, uh, I'm i in a new HBO Max show called Minx, which is set in the 70s as well, in 1972. And it's a a comedy about the first ever adult magazine for women. So I play the sister of the main woman 
And that's played by Ophelia Lovabond, who's a British actress that's amazing. And Jake Johnson plays the, the publisher that she teams up with. Fun. It's so fun. It's so smart and sharp and, again, really timely. And I, and, and I think people are going to get obsessed with it. And that's coming out in the spring. Awesome. So look for that. Definitely look for that. Sounds great. As far as my plugs, people can find me at Little Horror PHL on Twitter and Instagram, although I'm mostly on Twitter. And that username is pretty much everywhere, including the Patreon. If you decide that you really like the show and you want bonus episodes, there's all kinds of great stuff. We just recently put out an episode about Kurt Vonnegut and his connection between sci-fi and horror. And we actually read Epicac, the short story, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And we're, we're, we covered Resident Evil 2 and so like video games and all kinds of stuff that might not fit on the main feed happen over there. So if you want that, check that out. Oh, I can also tell you I was in a a horror movie called Hysterical Psycho, which was written and directed by Dan Fogler. (laughs) It's been out a long time. And it was on Netflix for a while, but I don't know where it lives now. But that's it's kind of like an indie film and it's in black and white and it's really really fun there you go built-in audience everyone should go check that out (laughs) uh all right great that's it everyone bye bye